Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3 today. When I got home Friday from getting my beach running haircut, Pam said to me, you look like a drill sergeant. And I said, that's me. Doesn't mean I'm going to bark at you all day today, though. We started a a two-part series. I don't know if it'll go further into April, but the question is, do I have to paint a picture? And Galatians 3.1 will answer that. Today will be called, do I have to paint a picture again? I'm still reeling from the prayer that Pastor Brown prayed, especially the last part. Keep him outside the camp. Whoa. Okay. This week, as I was giving special attention to these last four messages, between my last trip to Florida and this one, I have done 224 series, 48 hours on Better Call Paul. And it's what I would call an adequate introduction. Among the things that we've done there is present a scaffolding for a future series in Galatians. If not done by me, then done by future pastors or present pastors who will teach in the future. And also, I've presented this basic scaffolding for a future teaching of or exegesis of Romans. And, but we're going to keep plugging with Paul and all of his epistles. And as I was asking God, and I think I do this all the time, please make this message be a message that I would speak if it were the last thing I was going to say before passing on to be with you. And that urgency has to be maintained, even when there's a quiet advance of study and teaching, and sometimes when there's more of an enthusiastic preaching. But during the course of meditating on these last four messages, I asked, well, I think a question arose not from me, but it arose in my heart, and I think it came from the Holy Spirit. What is it that has characterized your ministry since November 18th, 1978. Has there been one strand with all the changes and the roller coaster of spiritual growth and development? What has been the consistent thing, as God could say, the consistent thing that I have done through you and for you and for the congregation in this area, whether it was Bible studies in Greensburg or Aliquippa or Ford City or Elwood City or Oil City or Aliquippa, Indiana, Monroeville, the Old Stone Church, or Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall, Gettysburg Room, Hall of Valor, Main Auditorium, upstairs, even while they were making The Silence of the Lamb, lambs, plural, I did a message called The Silence of the Lamb which relates a little bit to today's message. And Trinity, and here, and other places I can hardly recall, radio for 10 years, what's been consistent? And the consistency has been that God has granted a message by which a portrait of a crucified Son of Man has been painted, which elicits faith in the seers and in the hearers. There has been a portrait I have been involved, and I can say this for many other preachers, in painting a picture of a crucified and risen Savior. The difference from November 18th to now is that his cry, it is accomplished, which was said in Aramaic and not in Greek. He didn't say to tell us die. He said an Aramaic equivalent to that, but it meant mission accomplished. In the course of those 38 plus years, the meaning 
has increased to us. The meaning has always been there, but the meaning has increased to us about just what that means. It is done, says Revelation 21.6, in corresponding to John 19.30. It is done. What is done? Well, God says from his throne, look, I'm making everything new. Look, I'm making everything new. To make everything new is to make everything be in Christ Jesus. For to be in Christ Jesus is to be the new creation. What has changed is really not anything at all. But what has developed is that this portrait of Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised, as we've seen in Revelation, a lamb that had been slaughtered and yet standing. As we see in John, the crucified Jesus as John sees him from the foot of the cross, the beloved disciple. And then as Mary sees him in the garden standing after his crucifixion, after his slaughter as the lamb. And we've seen now and we're seeing in Paul, the difference now is that we see this crucified Savior as an all-saving Savior. An all-saving Savior. And so the aim of Better Call Paul is... Does the epistles of Paul, do the epistles of Paul in their totality, present the same picture that Revelation does, the apocalypse of John does, of a slaughtered but standing, a crucified but risen Savior whose light becomes the lamp for the entire renewed universe. And coming into shape in this message, and again, these first 48 are an adequate introduction. What's coming into shape is the yes answer to that question. The yes answer to that question. We're going to enter into another phase, and I intend to be looking deeply into Galatians, and especially Galatians in my absence. The next phase will be called Paul, or deal with at least, I don't know if I'll title anything, Paul and us. And us will have a two different meanings. It'll be us, us, but it'll also be U.S. having to do with universal something or other. Significance, salvation, we'll see. Now to hit second gear, something in the teaching of Jesus when he was here during his ministry, something in his teaching, something in his presentation, something in his style, caused some who heard him or some who heard about him. And there's, that's two different things, to hear someone and to hear about them. It's a shame when people make judgments based on hearing about somebody rather than hearing somebody. But it caused some who heard him or heard about him to suppose that he came to destroy the law and the prophets. Matthew 5.17, he answered and said, Stop thinking that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Don't you suppose this? I have come rather to fulfill the Torah and the prophets. Jesus' envoy to the pagans, the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who was made alive while in the midst of the transgression of trying to slaughter the church. Paul, Jesus' envoy to the pagans, was accused, especially by the teachers that invaded the churches in northern Galatia, he was accused of nullifying the law. 
the Torah. But he answered, we're not nullifying the law, but establishing it in its right place, its rightful place. The rightful place of the law was not to present a series of commands for people to obey in order to be justified and to avoid the curse of the law. But the law was given as a testimony of Jesus Christ, as were the prophets. Now, one of the secondary aims of this present study has to do with faith. Some who are hearing me and many who have heard about this message may be tempted to assume that I'm destroying the idea of faith. I'm not destroying faith, but putting it in its rightful place. There is a place for believing as a human act. There is a place for faithful trust, trusting fidelity. There is a place for that. There is a place for believing as a human act. But this act is not justifying or saving. The saving act is entirely an act of God enacted in Christ and by the Spirit. And so in Galatians 3.1, the answer, do I have to paint a picture again? This is exactly what Paul said to the Galatians. Teachers had come in and seduced them away from the gospel of the glory of the Christ. And so they were aiding and abetting the God of this age, as he's called in 2 Corinthians 4.3, whose entire counter mission to the apocalyptic mission of Jesus Christ, a mission of revelation, disclosure, unveiling. The counter mission of the God of this age is to veil, to hide, and to obscure in any possible way so that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines from the face of Jesus Christ doesn't shine into the heart. Of the unbelieving, and that includes the disbelieving Christian. And so they had been seduced. And so Paul basically asked this question Do I have to paint a picture again? Look at it, it says in Galatians 3 1. And this is the second rebuke paragraph in Galatians. This is part of the scaffolding if you want to ever teach it in the future. 1 6 to 9 is the first one. We talked about if an angel from heaven preaches another gospel than the one you've heard from us, let him be cursed. Paul emphasizes, let him be cursed. Because the teachers had accused Paul of being under a curse for preaching the wrong gospel. And Paul said, if anybody preaches another gospel than the one you've heard from us at first, even an angel from heaven, he said, let him be cursed. And we went into the angelology that's, that's there. I don't want to repeat it all now. The second rebuke paragraph addressed to the Galatians themselves or directed to them themselves is Galatians 3, 1 to 5, and then really into 6, where we start to get into Abraham, which is a subject I want to take up in the future. Oh, foolish Galatians, he says. And it, the word is ho anoete or anoetoi. Foolish Galatians, and the word anoete means thoughtless, senseless, unwise. It's sort of like the foolishness of 1 Corinthians one seventeen. only that different word there, Moriah, as it's called, but the foolishness of those who consider the cross and the word of the cross to be foolish and the preaching of the cross to be foolish. 
And those people are perishing, which means they're simply remaining in their original Adamic ontology. And they may even be trying to be good Christians in the Adamic ontology. That's what's happening inside the camp that Pastor Brown thanks, prayed that I'd stay out of. Inside the camp is a Christianity that tries to reconfigure Adam into doing Christian things. Outside the camp are those who are truly empowered by the Holy Spirit and by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as participants in his obedient fidelity. O oh, foolish Galatians, this word ho anoetoi, which I'm not, I don't have time to write up here today because I have a very economic message I want to bring to you. This same word is used by the risen Jesus who still bears the marks of his crucifixion on the road to Emmaus as he speaks to his disciples who were sad because their Messiah, they thought, was crucified. And Jesus said, Ho anoetoi, you foolish ones. Don't you think Christ should have suffered to enter his glory? They had been blocked from the glory while they were occupied with the gore of the cross. They missed the glory of that being the enthronement of the Son of Man and the salvation of all mankind. We have the same phrase in Deuteronomy 32:31, where Israel's enemies are called Anoetoi. The enemies of Israel are called Anoetoi. All this is in Paul's mind, and we're going to find out down the road that he quotes more often from Deuteronomy and from Deutero-Isaiah than almost anywhere else. And there's reasons for that. But in Deuteronomy 32:31, he no doubt had in his mind in the Septuagint translation, that Israel's enemies are called Anoetoi. So these foolish Galatians were acting not in concert with what it means to become the Israel of God, but against it. So they are foolish in a very restricted but important sense. They are foolish in that they are considering becoming enemies of the very true Israel that the teachers are claiming they will be if they become circumcised, the males, and then follow up with an observance of the law. Because in Deuteronomy 27, 26, these teachers in Galatia took that verse, cursed is everyone who does not obey the commands of this Torah. And they threatened these pagans with it. You say, well, we are already doing this as Jewish Christians and Messiah came to die for our sins, and you can join us by circumcision and then by obedience to the law's commands, at which time you may or may not still avoid the wrath of God that's coming in the final judgment. Paul already settled that. He said, therefore, being justified by his blood, Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath to come, the so-called wrath that the teachers are threatening you for. Why? Well, in Galatians, he takes another twist and says, because Christ became a curse for us. He takes another verse from Deuteronomy 21:23 and says, Christ became a curse for us. You see, in the portrait of Christ crucified, we see Christ becoming the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham, which was the promise to Abraham to inherit the world, would come to you pagans and bypass the law. As it came to you, it'll come directly to you because the promise is not made to Abraham, but to Abraham and to his seed. The whole point of Romans four 
as the same thing happens in Hebrews 11, when it talks about the so-called heroes of the faith, the whole point is to go right off the map of these heroes and turn the attention away from Abraham to Christ, who is the seed. Paul goes into Galatians later and he develops that seed is singular, not plural. When God promises the blessing of Abraham, which is the inheritance of the cosmos, a new universe, comes to all his seed, he then says that seed is singular and the seed is Christ. And Christ is the single, inclusive representative of all mankind. That's why he's called one like a son of man, one like the representative man. So when we paint a picture of Jesus Christ bearing the marks of crucifixion, this doesn't mean that Paul took him through the various phases of Christ's crucifixion to be a tear-jerking message, which thousands of preachers are going to pull on unsuspecting fools on Good Friday. They missed the whole point by just trying to get jerk some tears because look at all the things he suffered. And he did suffer greatly physically. And he did suffer greatly in his soul. He said to his own disciples, I'm, my soul is exceedingly aggrieved, even to the extent of death, even to the point where I feel like I'll die before I get to my destination to die. Yes, there was that grief. But what Paul portrayed is a Messiah that had been crucified, that still bore the marks of those crucifixion, of that crucifixion, And the mark of that passion by which he brought into effect a new creation. He portrays this son of man having been pierced at the crucifixion. But he portrays him not in the light of death, but in the light of a new and strangely wonderful kind of livingness that's everlasting. That's the picture he painted. O foolish Galatians, therefore... And then he said, before whose eyes, look at this. This is very interesting because he says, who has mesmerized you? This is a specific reference to a magical thing that was done in those days. Magic, as a Led Zeppelin song, I think it was Ramble On says, magic ruled the air. There was an air of magic in the air, like in Tolkien's books. And there were magicians. And he says, these preachers have mesmerized you. These teachers have mesmerized you with a specific magic spell called the evil eye. They have bewitched you with the evil eye. They've mesmerized. They've hypnotized you. He said, who? has mesmerized you. He's speaking of these particular teachers who incidentally will be sitting in the congregation as one of Paul's appointed teachers performs this epistle. The teachers are in the congregation. Who has memorized you, mesmerized you with an evil eye, put a magic spell on you. And then he says, before whose eyes, and you don't see that word, the evil eye in that bascaño, which is a magic spell, but that's what it is. It's a spell of the evil eye. It's the, the mesmerization. Look into the eyes of the teacher and you're mesmerized into something that seems very seductive and attractive and makes you special. 
because you obey the law, because you have a mark now, you males of circumcision. Paul said to them in Galatians 5, 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you bow to this mandate to be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. That's Paul speaking. I know, I called him. I said, Paul, what do you say? I, Paul, say... Who has mesmerized you with the evil eye? Put a magic spell on you. Before whose eyes a portrait of Jesus Christ, estaromenos, estaromenos, crucified in the past, but raised in the present, was publicly painted. Who has mesmerized you with the evil eye? Put a magic spell on you, seduce you. Before whose eyes... Before the eyes of your imagination, the eyes of your heart, was painted a portrait of Jesus Christ, having been crucified. The tense is very important there. Paul didn't just emphasize the horrors of his crucifixion. He presented the Son of Man standing in resurrection, having been crucified. Why? Because that Son of Man is the source of their justification, not circumcision. That Son of Man, crucified and risen and enthroned in glory, is the means of their justification, not their personal faith, which they may have decided to have one day, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in his faithful obedience to the extent of death. What does, Revelate, what does Romans 5.10 say? We were reconciled by his death. It doesn't say we were reconciled by faith. It said we were reconciled by his death. How much more shall we be saved by his life, his resurrection? Paul presented a picture of a crucified but risen Messiah radiating life and livingness, a newness of life that you and I can enter in in this time. We could actually say, get a life, and you'd get one. Again, I'm, in, I'm attracted constantly in my heart to Ezekiel 16, one of the most touching pictures in the scripture. There are two that involve Yahweh's confrontation. The one is with Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, whom you would expect he would visit and condemn. He says, your son, Ishmael, I'm going to make him a great nation. And he showed her where there was a bubbling brook that saved her and her son. That's because God has universal intentions, not local ones. God thinks globally, not locally, when it comes to salvation. Now, the other one is when he comes upon Israel and she's in her blood. That can either mean that she was just born through the wilderness and through great slavery, and she was in her blood like a, a baby that's not yet been washed, just born, but laying there and forsaken, and therefore just as good as dead. In fact, that could also be interpreted doubly as, I found you in your blood, meaning in your death, in your death in trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2.5. And I said to you, believe in me and you will live. No, he didn't say that. He simply said, I said to you, live, and you lived. I said to you, live, and she lived. Do I have to, Paul says, do I have to paint a picture again? You were convinced the first time you saw the crucified Messiah that therein lies your justification, your salvation. 
Consider Jacob's dream at Bethel. All the scriptures present the portrait and the painting of the crucified son of man. Jacob's dream in Bethel. He had a vision of a ladder planted on earth reaching to heaven. He sees Yahweh at the peak of that ladder. He sees angels ascending and descending on that ladder. At the opening of John, when Jesus speaks to Nathaniel and the others, remember, he says, there's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no God. There's a true Jew right there. Nathaniel said, how did you know me? And the Lord said, I saw you under the fig tree. And what Nathaniel was thinking about under the fig tree was the vision that Jacob had in Bethel in Genesis 28 of the stairway to heaven, which isn't a lot of steps. It's one son of man. And so he was amazed. And Jesus said, are you amazed at that? I'm going to tell you something. From now on, you're going to see the son of man with angels ascending and descending on him. That staircase is the son of man. That salvific junction between heaven and earth is the son of man. You will see angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now that word ladder is interesting because the word Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28:12 is climax. And in a way it's the climax of the plan of God. The Greek says climax. And so that's a specific word for ladder. And so I looked at some of the Greek and Liddell Scott. They're always helpful. They say that in the Odyssey, that's way back with Homer, it's called a scaling ladder, a ladder by which soldiers would scale walls and conquer a fortified city. In Thucydides and Xenophon, both of whom wrote about the Athens and Sparta and their wars, it was a ship's ladder as also in Euripides and Theocrates. But here's the most important definition. This came right around about 100 or 200 years before the Septuagint translation was developed from the Hebrew. Climax, by Aristophanes, we had to study him. We were forced to study him at the University of Rome. I mean, we had the privilege of studying him. He was a Greek satirical playwright who wrote two very stinging. He was sort of like the... Author Jane Austen, who wrote to mock and satirize the pride and prejudice of her culture, the culture at the time. Aristophanes wrote to mock and mockingly satirize the culture of Athens at the time, their hoity toity type culture. But he wrote The Clouds and he wrote Lysistrata in the fourth century or the fifth century BC, the golden age of Pericles. But to him, Climax, by that time in the Greek, became, quote, a frame with crossbar on which persons to be tortured were tied. And this is above all the words. The words, the closest Greek use to the Septuagint is this definition. What Jacob saw was not a ladder where people send up the steps, but a cross. He saw a torture instrument. And Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man, angels 
of God ascending and descending. We could even say that's what the book of Revelation is. It's angels ascending and descending all throughout the book of Revelation on command of the Son of Man. But the point being, what Jacob saw was the painting of Christ and him crucified. And as soon as he saw this, he said the Lord was standing beside him, saying, I promise you this, Jacob, I will never leave you until I have accomplished everything I promised you. And that's the same assurance we have. First, we see the portrait of the crucified Messiah, then risen. Then he stands beside us in the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Son, whom God sends into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And he says, I began this good work in you. I will carry it to completion. It is me in you, both willing and doing, of my good pleasure. So, here's the gift of faith by which you will be assured of things hoped for. For faith is the assurance of hoped for things. You have this life now. You have a share in this life now. You can experience the power of the resurrection in some meaningful but inaugural meaning now. And you can know some conformity to my death now. But my gospel is also promissory of a great, the best is yet to come future. So here's the gift of faith so that we, Paul said, by the spirit and through faith, wait for the hope of righteousness or the final outcome of this deliverance, this salvation, which of course is our bodily resurrection and our free travel throughout a brand new universe, glistening and glowing and animated with the life and the glory of the son of God. It's a gift. So the staircase was a frame with a crossbar, which Jacob saw, on which the Son of Man suffered. But he also had the sense of the Son of Man being Yahweh himself, standing above that cross. So he saw him crucified and raised. He saw what Paul painted a picture of. You see, the gospel is testified to in Torah, in Genesis. The gospel of Christ is testified to by, both by Torah and the prophets. And speaking of the prophets, Isaiah 58, Isaiah 53 make that. Deutero Isaiah, the second Isaiah from 40 to 55, the most key passage for the New Testament writers in terms of the prophets. It says there, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, arm of Yahweh, been apocalyptically revealed? The answer to that, and here's a shocker for you, the one to whom the arm of the Lord was revealed is Jesus Christ himself. The power of God for salvation was revealed first in Jesus Christ's case because God elevated him out of death into life. And in that sense, the Son of Man himself experienced the salvation of God. And in that sense also, as one who represents all humankind, he experienced salvation, the arm of the Lord for all mankind. There's something about the preaching of the gospel that carries with it the same effect as the cross of Christ and his resurrection. There's something invested in the gospel that elicits, kindles, incites, 
generates faith. So that angels from God are seen ascending and descending on it. Jesus said, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Partly what this means is that Jesus Christ did not call upon angels. He said, do you think that I could, don't you think that I could call, it says in John 12, I could call 12 legions of angels. And that's about 6,000 angels to each legion. You think I could call, he commanded a legion of angels, fallen angels, to leave a man. The name of the band of angels that had possessed and infested this man was called legion. And Jesus said, go. He can command legions. Don't you think I could command legions of angels? He's the son of man. He commands and angels descend. He commands and angels ascend. The angels of God ascend and descend. When Jesus said when he returns, he said, you, Caiaphas, will see the Son of Man coming with the power of God and with the angels of God. They'll be ascending and descending on him like fleets of jets next to him, going up and down next to him as he comes in his power. Caiaphas tore his robe then and said, obviously this man is blaspheming. We've heard it from his own lips now. He's saying he's God the son. He's saying he's the Messiah. He's saying he's the Messiah. So they shall see him. They shall look upon him whom they pierced. Who? The son of man, who is Yahweh himself. For when Yahweh said that in Zechariah 12, he said, you speaking of Israel will look upon me. You speaking of his enemies will look upon me, says Yahweh, whom you have pierced whom you have nailed and impaled to a tree. And looking upon him, they won't be condemned or damned. They'll be saved. According to Isaiah 40, verse 5, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You know when you see the salvation of God? When you see the picture of Christ, the Messiah, crucified and risen. Angels descending and ascending on this ladder or this cross refers to the fact that the Son of Man did not call upon angels to descend from heaven to save him from that cross. He said, I was born to this end. This is why I came. So instead, not calling angels to his aid, if any had descended, the Son of Man said, ascend back up there where you came from. Angels are ascending and descending all around the cross, partly because there's traffic between heaven and earth now that's easily taken by the angels because the wall between the dimensions has been destroyed. And the wall between Jews and Gentiles has been destroyed. And left in between instead is Jesus who is our peace and we are one new humanity. Ephesians 2.14 and 15. So then, instead of calling angels to his aid, he submitted to crucifixion in an act of faithful obedience to the Father's love intention to save the world through him. To save humankind and retrieve creation from its screaming torment. All creation, not just groans, but screams for liberation from its slavery to corruption. 
Jacob, in effect, then saw a vision of Jesus Christ having been crucified, after which the Lord assured Jacob in Genesis 28:15b, I will not leave you until I've done what was promised to you. And this is interesting. Martin Luther, if you're going to study Martin Luther's writings, you've got to realize the man lived a whole lifetime. In fact, even Paul developed from thinking that people sleep in Jesus and go into a soul sleep until the resurrection to believing and coming to understand that to depart from this life is to be instantly present with the Lord and to be in a much, much better place. He developed. Luther developed. When he was a young monk, he was tormented, tortured. He was a tortured soul. Partly because he tried to think about election and predestination. And if God was going to elect some, am I among the elect? And am I among the predestined? And he understood that when God elected, it was unconditional. When God elected, it was unconditional. When God predestined, it was unconditional. When God saves, it's like calling something that didn't exist into existence. It's like raising from the dead. So it's not that God makes effective the the faith of a spiritually dead person. A spiritually dead person is incapable of faith. Rather, the gospel that's preached elicits faith, as we'll see. Martin Luther, in 1542, this is 25 years after he supposedly nailed, but most people now understand that he mailed him, not nailed him, the 95 Thesis. The nailing on the door is very... It's a good popular anecdote, but it may not be the case. He may have just mailed him in. I would have. In other words, I would have preserved my life in the same moment of sending all my changes to Catholic doctrine. I would have said, I'm mailing these to you, and you don't know where I am. No. But after he nailed or mailed these 95 theses on the wall, and this is recorded in The Coming of God by Moltmann, Page 251, he said in a sermon, this is 25 years later, speaking about tormenting speculations that people engage in regarding election and predestination. He said, and I'm going to keep the florid Elizabethan language here. Why tormentest thyself with such speculations? Look upon the wounds of Christ. Look upon the wounds of of Christ, there thine election is assured for you. His con- he was a pastor. This was very pastoral. Why do you torment yourself? Do you th- are you tormenting yourself about election or predestination? Or what if you're one of the few? Or what if you're not one of the few? And if you're not one of the few, even if you believe with all your heart and believe and believe and believe and try and try and try, you're not one of the elect. Why do you torment yourself? Here's the portrait, the painting of the crucified Christ. See the wounds? There's where your election is assured to you. The death of Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection was a death for all so that all died when he died. And his resurrection was a resurrection for all. For he was handed over for our sins. That's everybody's. And raised for our justification, that's everybody's. That's the end of Romans 4 when Paul says, okay, the teachers are making a big deal out of Abraham. Let's take our attention away from Abraham and his faith 
and put it on Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to the extent of death by crucifixion and ending in a justifying resurrection. And then Paul hits the unchained gospel in 5.1. Therefore, being justified by the faithfulness, we have peace with God. That's not our faith. It's because he said we're reconciled and have peace by the death of Christ and justified by his life. Therefore, being justified by his faithfulness, we have peace with God, including the peaceful assurance that he will complete what he started in us. You want to know about your election? Look at Jesus Christ, who was elected. He was rejected for all. And elected as all. It's Jesus Christ. So you see in Galatians 3.2. What we see so far is that stairway to heaven is none other than the crucified son of man. And there is no lady that's buying a stairway to heaven. Sorry Led Zeppelin. You've been led the wrong direction on that one. Galatians 3.2. I only want to learn this from you Paul says. I was there teaching you as disciples. And he uses the word for discipleship here. Now you school me. Only just tell me one thing. Did you receive the spirit from works done in obedience to the law? Or from the, please notice the word here, it's akoe. It's not the hearing. It's the message. Or at the occasion of the message. Did you receive the spirit from works of the law? Or from the report, that's the gospel, of faithfulness. Ek akoes pistios. Did you receive the spirit on the occasion of a reward, as a reward for your execution of obedience to the works of the law? Or did you receive the spirit on the occasion of the gospel about Christ's faithfulness? And we could say, which elicited your faith. Now, I'm going to let, follow this now. I know there's questions being in the air. That's good for you. That's healthy for you. All the exertions you've been having about these questions are going to be great when they're answered, and you'll have more peace and more joy than you ever thought you could have, I think, if the Holy Spirit's doing what I think he's doing. So I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, from works of the law, ex ergon namu, from the works of the law, or from the report? Of faithfulness from the gospel. The gospel is the power unto salvation. In fact, if that translation is what the majority texts say, the gospel of Christ is the power, referring to the fact that Christ himself is the power for salvation. That would agree with 1 Corinthians one twenty four. and if we knew that, we wouldn't be foolish like the Galatians. We'll see later in Galatians that Christ and his faithfulness are one and the same. Paul talks about the coming of the seed, Christ, and he talks about the coming of faithfulness. And they're one person, Jesus Christ. He is the seed. He is the faithfulness of God personified. He is our salvation. We're going to see later in Galatians that Christ and this faithfulness are one, that Christ is his faithfulness, that in him is the fullness of grace and truth or the unilateral fulfillment of God's covenant to Israel and through Israel to all the nations. Romans ten sixteen. consider this. 
If you want to turn there, you can briefly if you're really fast or if you're quick on the draw. Romans 10.16. Here's the problem Paul addresses. Here's more scaffolding for a future teaching in Romans. Romans 9 through 11, Paul deals with the troubling and puzzling question, why does Israel, the people of God's own choosing, by and large reject the gospel? Why? The problem is addressed. In fact, Romans 10, 16, we could translate it that way. But the problem, Paul says, being addressed through Romans 9 through 11, is not It is that not all have obeyed the gospel, he says, obeyed the gospel. But the problem is that not all have obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah said, anticipating this unbelief, in other words, anticipating the unbelief or disobedience of much of Israel in Paul's day, that's exactly what Isaiah was doing. He was anticipating the problem that Paul has to address in 9 through 11. Isaiah said, anticipating this in Isaiah 53, 1, Lord, who has believed our report? The report there is akoe. Who has believed our report? And it goes on to say, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53, 1 initiates, guess what? A painting, a portrait of a crucified servant of Yahweh, who strangely is Yahweh himself, and on the other hand is a representative of all of Israel and all of the nations in Israel. He is the seed that encompasses all of humanity. Isaiah 53, 1 then says, who has believed our report? In other words, Paul goes into this in verse 17. Consequently, he says, faith, here's faith in its proper place, is elicited by a report. And the report comes through the message about Christ. At the message about Christ, the Holy Spirit elicits faith. He comes to you with the gift of faithfulness. The problem confronted head-on by Paul in Romans 9 to 11 is the unbelief or the disobedience, as it's called, they mean the same thing here, of much of Israel. The problem is solved by the wisdom of God, Romans eleven thirty three. Paul says, oh, the depth of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is Christ himself, and he's the power for salvation. So the problem is solved by the wisdom of God, by which God imprisoned both Jews and Gentiles in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. Problem solved, 1132. Nothing left to do but worship and praise and give thanks, 1133 to 36, because to him, by him, through him, and to him is everything. Romans 1136, so the problem is solved. But there's a lot more that goes into this. For God to have mercy is for God to save. They're one and the same. For God to have mercy is for God to save. Titus 3.5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. According to his mercy, he saved us. By the bath of regeneration, through the renewal of the spirit, which he poured out copiously on us, for by grace you were justified. In encapsulating the whole act of salvation in Titus 3, 5 through 7, he never mentions faith. But justification by grace, regeneration through the renewal of 
performed by the Holy Spirit, at which time we may assume that when the Spirit is given, so is faith as a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit isn't a fruit of our faithfulness. Faithfulness is the fruit of the Spirit. God pours out his Spirit on all flesh, ultimately, says Joel. That's So when the Holy Spirit was poured out on us, we were regenerated. But the Bible says he's going to pour out his Spirit on all flesh, which intimates to me that maybe all flesh will be regenerated. I know this is a hard message. I'm doing it on purpose. You can't grow unless you stretch the spirit is the spirit of faith or faithfulness according to second corinthians 4:13 and paul said we have the same spirit of faithfulness as who as the psalmist in psalm 116:10 no the psalmist is speaking there but christ is speaking through him about a faithfulness that does not stop and does not waver even under great affliction. That's the faithfulness of Messiah. Paul said we have the same spirit of faithfulness as Messiah. In other words, we have the privilege of participation in Messiah's own trusting, faithful obedience to the Father, which led him to the extent of death and then resurrection. That's how we experience conformity to his death. And the out-resurrection from the dead in this life now, in some meaningful measure, it's by participating in his fidelity that does not waver, does not get interrupted, does not stop, even in great affliction, which we are appointed to, some measure. According to 1 Thessalonians 3.3, but God is faithful, who will never permit you to be tested above and beyond what you're able to handle. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, but then you knew that. We receive the Spirit who generates faith in us on the report of the gospel. Showing mercy to all, then, means saving all. Put a Romans eleven thirty two together with Titus 3, 5, you get the idea. Showing mercy to all means saving all. That goes along with Titus 2, 11, the grace of God has appeared. It's made its appearance. In, in what? In how? It's made its appearance in a crucified, risen Messiah. And this is what the grace of God means in that appearance. appearance. Salvation to all human beings. Titus 2.11. When all are saved, all are ultimately going to demonstrate their salvation by their faithful allegiance to Yahweh. As Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says, every knee, says God, as I live. And Jesus could say, as I who died live, every knee shall genuflect to me on earth, under the earth, above the earth, in heaven, on earth and under the earth. Every knee will bow to me. John adds, under the sea and on the sea, all creation and every tongue including angels' tongues. They do have tongues, according to 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Angels have tongues, so angels will acknowledge. All angels will. All angels will. That Yahweh, who was pierced, according to Zechariah 12.10, is Yeshua, who was crucified and risen and lives. 
I'm just painting a picture here. This is art. It's not science. I'm not, I'm not saying this to convince everybody. I'm saying, I'm preaching the gospel and there is with this gospel a wonderful momentum being created by the spirit of grace for the church, giving you momentum. So here the mind is not as important as the imagination, which is the deepest part of the heart of man, where the eyes of the heart see a crucified and risen Messiah. So this word akoe found in Hebrew in Isaiah 53.1, Deutero-Isaiah, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm, that's the power for salvation of the Lord, been revealed, apocalypto. From that verse, the prophet goes on to paint a picture of the crucified and then risen and exalted servant of Yahweh. Read that this Good Friday in this light. Isaiah 53, the chosen passage of every preacher who doesn't want to study, but has a list of messages that are appropriate to speak on different holidays. Good Friday, Isaiah 53, crack it open, read it, get people to jerk some tears from people and the miss the whole point. That's what's going on inside the camp. So I agree with you, Pastor Brown, keep me outside and let us all go outside the camp bearing his reproach says Hebrews, because we have no continuing city here. Are you all settled in on this planet? Then woe to you. Everything all resolved and all set for you. You got it made. You can eat, drink, and be merry now because your barns are filled. What a pathetic picture. Let's go outside the camp. In Isaiah 53, we find out in verse 11 that by his anguish, by the experience of his suffering, many will be justified. Remember that? Many will be justified. Not by faith, but by his anguish. By his suffering, the righteous one, the servant of Yahweh, shall justify many. And guess what Paul did with that verse? He interpreted many there in Romans 5.18 as being everyone. By his obedience to the extent of death in which he suffered greatly, if we want to blend Isaiah 53, 11 with Psalm 116 and with Psalm 16 and with Psalm 22 and with Philippians 2, 9 to 11 and Isaiah 45, 22 to 23, look unto me all you ends of the earth and be saved. If you want to blend all these together, we have a pretty universalistic picture of a universal saving Christ. Many are justified. Paul said in Romans 5.18, this many is interpreted as everyone. For as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were brought to condemnation, so by the obedience of the one man, that's obedience to the extent of the experience of death for all, then everyone will be justified. Everyone, the many equals all. Again, the source and the means of justification is the death of the servant of Yahweh, which is inseparably linked with his exaltation. In Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, he speaks at once of his lifting up in crucifixion and his continued elevation in enthronement and exaltation. What Isaiah did was present a crucified and risen Messiah as the source and means of the justification of everyone. 
That's what I mean by there's been a development in these last 38 years of the same message. It is finished. That's why a picture of him needs to be painted. Preachers, teachers, evangelists, missionaries, teachers of children, mothers who teach children, fathers and parents who teach children, paint a picture of the crucified and risen Messiah. Don't worry about coaxing people to believe that message elicits faith. The message makes faith effective. Faith doesn't make the message effective. The message makes faith effective. So there's a secondary antinomy. There is a difference between faithfulness and works of the law, but that's secondary, secondary. That's a matter of the spiritual life. Is your spiritual life a meritorious trip or is it? a participation with the fidelity of Jesus Christ toward God. I say I have much more to say on this subject, and I'll be harboring these things in my heart. Now, the source and means of justification is the death and resurrection of the servant of Yahweh. But this does not rule out faith on our part. doesn't take it out of the picture. It only removes our faith from being the source or the means of our justification. We do believe. If I were to ask most of you today, if not all of you here and in the overflow rooms and down in the coffee room where people are getting jittery because they had so much coffee, coffee helps your concentration. I know I had one this morning with a shot of espresso in it, but too much coffee, you lose your concentration. Just a tip for Beantown, that's all. I would say to all of you, what do you believe? Tell me what you believe. And you would say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I believe that God raised him from the dead. I believe. You you would say, you'd believe all these things. And the reason you believe all those things is because you're in Christ. You didn't believe all those things to be saved. You're saved and you believe all those things as an indication of your salvation, as a marker of you being in Christ through regeneration. So our faith is not made effective for salvation. Salvation makes our faith effective. The gospel elicits or kindles faithful trust, and this faithful trust is our human act in Christ as the gift of assurance that we are in him. Faith, at least in part, in large part, is the gift of assurance that we are in him. It's the conviction of things not seen. We don't see that we're in him. We are in him by the gift. When we understand this through the gift of faith, through faith, we understand, says Hebrews eleven three. And so here's the spiritual life. Let's turn here and close Galatians 5, 5. Again, this is this. All of this is a scaffold, a scaffold for a building. Our faith is placed in its right place. The gospel elicits, that's the word Lou Martin uses, I would say kindles or engenders faith. And that in one aspect of faith, it is our human activity of believing, of trusting fidelity and faithfulness. If your salvation is based on this faithfulness, you better always be believing and always be believing really, really good. Because it's a participial form of the word believing in Romans 1, 11, Romans 1, 16 and 17. And throughout John, you better always be believing. Because if you have 
a lapse in faith, you're lost as soon as you have your lapse of faith. Thank God it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in which there is no lapse. And when you're a partaker of that faithfulness, guess what? It doesn't matter what affliction comes your way to discourage you. If you're a pastor, if something comes that knocks you for a loop and seems to knock you out, and people actually say in various towns, that'll do him in It doesn't do you in because you're a partaker of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that endured the affliction of the cross and came through with resurrection. That's the faith that you have. That's the faithfulness in which you participate. That's the faithfulness that makes life worth living. It is not deterred by any amount of affliction. And so the gospel kindles faithful trust, and this faithful trust is our human act in Christ as the gift of assurance that we are in him. And this obedient faithfulness is what the apostle Paul was commissioned to bring about. I have received this grace and apostleship, what? To bring about this obedience of faith and among all the Gentiles, so that all the Gentiles and all the nations may participate in this fidelity, this kind of fidelity to God as was demonstrated in Christ. And so this is the epitome of the spiritual life in Galatians 5.5. 5. For through the Spirit, we could even say, through the Spirit, from faithfulness. Through the Spirit, from faithfulness, sent by Christ himself, we eagerly wait for the hope of, of deliverance, meaning there's much more to come. There is much more to come. For in Christ Jesus, notice that phrase, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any meaning at all, is not strong at all. Iskiroi means it's not powerful at all. These things are not powerful concepts. These are not life realities. But faithfulness, that's Christ's own trusting and obedient faithfulness continuing in the church's participation in it. I was crucified with Christ, is Paul's testimony. Nevertheless, I live. But it is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in my everyday existence, we could say, makes everyday existence more than just everyday existence. I live by the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me. Notice it and gave himself for me. That's why Galatians five, six says for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any meaning, but faithfulness. That's Christ's own working by love. God's love poured out in our hearts by the Holy spirit who was given to us. So now hear and see this as we go into another gear of our study, having finished an adequate intro in 48 messages. The secondary antinomy in Galatians and Romans between faith and works is an opposition of two laws in Christ to people that are already in Christ. What we call the Christian spiritual life or what I like to call the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus, made possible only by and in the Holy Spirit, in that Christian spiritual life, it is faithfulness, or the faithfulness of Christ toward God, which he demonstrated in the cross, the faithfulness of Christ toward God is the faithfulness that's in us. 
and it is made effective continually, constantly being made effective by God's love in Christ Jesus. And that makes us a people that have a life and that can show mercy. You don't show mercy until you know mercy. And when you know mercy, you show mercy. You have mercy. You have a quality that's utterly missing from this zeitgeist today. Mercy toward others. Compassion toward others. You know mercy. You show mercy. You live in the faithfulness of the Son of God, which is motivated by love, which is poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit, nothing can separate you from this love of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll impart momentum and that you'll enlighten the imagination and the eyes of our heart with a portrayal of a crucified, risen, enthroned Messiah in whom is our salvation, in whom is our life, in whom is our future, our destiny. For our destiny is risen. Our destiny is a risen bodily resurrection. Father, thank you for the gift of faith that waits for this by the Holy Spirit's power. And we thank you in Christ's name.